Article 16, And God Remembered Noah, by Pastor Dan Gaiman. Genesis 8.1 begins with an announcement that contains only four words, And God Remembered Noah. It is important to understand this statement from God's perspective before we can understand what it means for Noah and his family. The eternal God is sovereign, supreme, omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient. God has never remembered anything because he has never forgotten anything. God knows everything, comprehensively and instantly. He has never learned anything because there is nothing God does not already know. Because God is omniscient, all-knowing, God knew everything imaginable from before the foundation of the world. God knows everything because he foreordained it. God never looks into the tunnel of time to see what the future may hold or to see what anyone is going to do to gain some insight or information that he does not already know. It's difficult for us to reflect upon the simple phrase, and God remembered Noah, and understand the enormity of that verse for Noah, his family, and representatives of all the other distinct races, together with all animals, birds, and other life forms. Noah and company had been packed inside the ark for five months. For much of this time, they endured what must have been the most turbulent seas, being tossed violently as the earth heaved to and fro, with hot water bursting from the subterranean caverns of the earth and the canopy of water descending from above. The future of every living thing that once existed was depending upon the lives aboard the ark. Noah did not know how long he and his company would be on that ark. For 150 days, the ark was tossed on turbulent water like a cork bobbing up and down. Amid the violence of flooding, earthquakes, and volcanoes, Noah's flood far exceeds the capacity of our imaginations. We simply cannot comprehend all the impact. But try, imagine yourself in the shoes of those inside the ark. What must they have been thinking? Did they have any knowledge of how long this voyage would last? Would the ark break apart from the violence of the waves? Would they run out of food? Would they survive? How did they prevent anxiety and fear from overwhelming them? The life message of Noah is worthy of careful study, for we learn seven facts about Noah in God's word. Number one, Noah had faith. By faith, Noah. Faith is the substance of things hoped for in Hebrews. Noah's faith rested upon the hope that he and his family would survive the judgment of water. Number two, Noah was warned of God, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Noah was motivated to do something about the pending trouble. Surely, people today can see that the wickedness proliferating across the earth is going to bring the wrath of God in catastrophic judgment. Number three, Noah moved with fear, and this fear and reverence for God motivated him to act. Noah possessed a wholesome fear of God. For Hebrews 10.31 says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. A healthy fear of God is both noble and wise. Number four, Noah prepared an ark. He did what God commanded in an enormous task and act of obedience. He had to build a boat that would survive the most cataclysmic flood that ever would occur. This also represented one of the most complex and significant construction projects in human history. Obeying God and looking out for his family, Noah built the ark to the saving of his house. Is there any more noble work on this earth than raising a godly family? Is it not the greatest legacy of any man or woman that can leave on this earth and their family? 
In the eyes of God, any man that can establish a Christian family with enduring faith and service to Jesus Christ has climbed the summit of a tall mountain. For there are numerous threads of responsibility in marriage, including faith, to multiply children, and the difficult path of providing for their discipline, training, education, food, and needs. Because Noah acted on his faith to build the ark amid jeers of ridicule and ostracism, he proved that he was willing to walk a different road than the majority of people. The majority in Noah's day were traveling the broad way towards spiritual, moral, and physical destruction. Noah entered through the straight gate and the narrow road of faith and obedience to God. As you know, God has always worked through a small remnant. He used very few to turn the world upside down. Jesus provided bread and fish to 10,000 men, women, and children, but suffered all alone at his crucifixion. Only a handful of disciples had the courage to witness his suffering, humiliation, and death. History has always been in the hands of the remnant. The future of the entire world rested on Noah's shoulder. Without Noah in the ark, history would have ended. God has worked through the remnant throughout history. It has been said that the large doors always swing on small hinges. History has always swung with the minority. Recall that Martin Luther and a handful of Reformation fathers launched the Pre Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. They faced huge opposition from the monolithic Roman Catholic Church and created the greatest reformation since the days of the apostles. In the next century, a small remnant of Puritans worked to purify the Anglican Church. Even though the hierarchy of the Anglican Church opposed them, on August 24, 1662, 2,000 Puritan clergy were removed from their pulpits. God took this Puritan reformation and used these men as a major force in settling the United States of America. From a world population moving toward judgment and destruction, our sovereign God worked with Noah and his family to repopulate the earth after the worldwide flood. If you are traveling a road that seems strange to others in this present world, take courage. Number six, in building the ark, Noah condemned the world. Noah was a preacher of righteousness for about 120 years. Noah built and preached to the unbelievers of his day. The people scoffed and jeered. But Noah faithfully and diligently continued constructing the ark and bearing his testimony to an unbelieving generation. When the judgment of the catastrophic flood came, it was too late for those who rejected the warning. With his faithful obedience and steadfast faith, Noah brought condemnation upon an entire generation of faithless people. Number 7. Noah became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Noah is number 10 in the list of the first 10 generations from Adam. Noah's grandfather was Lamech, his grandfather was Methuselah, and his great-grandfather was Enoch. Noah is listed as the third person in the hall of the faithful saints in Hebrews 11. Every Christian child should grow up learning about Noah and the flood. Noah lived to be 950 years old. He lived in two worlds, the old and the new. He is one of the most highly pro profiled saints of the Old Testament. Those who are resurrected to live in the kingdom of God will one day meet this illustrious man. Our eternal God remembered Noah. His character and divine attributes would not allow him to make a promise he did not keep. Plus, our creator loves his creation, especially Adam kind. God created Adam man for communion. God loves the praise and worship of his people. More than this, however, he desires communion with his people. How much prayer and worship do you believe that Noah and his family engaged in within the ark? Noah would be on the ark for 370 days, just a little more than a year. Consider living aboard a vessel the size of the ark for more than one full year without touching land. 
Try to contemplate what Noah and his family might have been thinking, and consider how helpless they might have felt without the knowledge of the goodness of God. Everyone on this earth today is 100% dependent on the faithfulness of our sovereign God to maintain and sustain this planet. Oxygen, food, and every necessary life-sustaining provision comes from our eternal Father. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt and their lives became so laden in misery, they were forced to cry out to the living God for his mercy. Exodus 2.23 records this. And the children of Israel sighed by the reason of bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. Do you suppose that Noah and his family were driven to prayers and supplication from their present and future safety? God heard the prayers of his people. Exodus 2, verse 24 and 25 records his response to the suffering Israelites. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Jehovah honored the oath he had made with Abraham in an unconditional covenant of promise that he would always be a God to Abraham and his children forever, found in Genesis 17, 6-7. Across the ripples of time, God has delivered his covenant people on the basis of God's covenantal promise to Abraham. Salvation history itself rests on God faithfully keeping his promises. The births of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ six months later was in fulfillment of the unconditional covenant God promised by an oath to our father Abraham. In Luke chapter 1 verse 72, To perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham. Jehovah was right on time, remembering Noah. Genesis 8 verse 2 through 4 provides us with the events at the end of the first 150 days aboard the ark. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of a hundred and fifty days the waters were abated, and the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. God stopped the fountains of the deep and closed the windows of heaven. He restrained the rains when his work was finished. Then the waters began to recede on the seventeenth day of the seventh month. The ark came aground on the mountains of Ararat, located in the extreme eastern side of Turkey, where Iran, Turkey, and Armenia converge. Two significant peaks are prominent there, the greater and lesser Ararat Mountains peaks. The larger peak rises to 17,000 feet, and the lesser to about 12,000. A thorough study well worth your time is Howard B. Rand's 630-page book, Primogenesis. Mr. Rand points out the peaks of the Himalaya Mountains in the Hindu Kush region of northern Afghanistan. Other scholars believe the Genesis account of the Ark resting in the mountains of Ararat, but not in the location typically named in eastern Turkey. Though I will not attempt to vindicate either position, I provide that information for your further study. What is important is this. When the Ark came aground, what a moment in time that must have been, as Noah and his family stepped onto dry ground. Even at such a high elevation, what a relief that must have been. Noah and his family had survived a momentous test. How much longer would they need to wait before the water level would fall to a point where the earth could begin to dry? Noah must have wondered when the earth would be dry enough for human habitation. Consider the volume of water that continued to remain on the earth, which was covering to an amazing depth five months into the flood. Also, note the careful documentation of time, the day, month, and year are noted at the end of the first 150 days. Though there was a long time to wait, 
More than six months, the end was in sight. The length of time required for the water to recede is another indication of the enormous depth and extent of this global flood that literally covered the face of the entire Earth. Those who have never really spent time investigating the Genesis Flood may end up asking this rather stupid question. How much of the Earth was underwater during the Genesis Flood? The answer is quite simple. All of the Earth that was under heaven was covered. From Genesis 7, verse 19 and 20, we see this. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the Earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the water prevail, and the mountains were covered. Who can argue with God's holy word? The ark came to rest on what is now known as Mount Ararat. Not everyone agrees where the mountains of Ararat mentioned in the Genesis flood story were located, but the prevailing opinion places these mountains where they are found today. No one has yet reached the actual ark, though a limited number of explorers have made effort to find it and even claim to have seen a part of the ark. Our sovereign God spared Noah because of the remarkable truth confirmed in Genesis 6-9. Noah not only found grace in the eyes of the eternal God, but also God saw him as a justified man. Noah had communion with his creator. He had also preserved his racial genetics without diluting them with the blood from other races. According to the book of Jasher, mentioned in the Old Testament books of Joshua and 2 Samuel, Noah married a daughter from Enoch's offspring. Noah entered in the ark into the 600th year of his life, which meant that Noah was a contemporary with many of the patriarchs who preceded him in his genealogical line. Beyond his incredible life resume is another factor to consider about Noah, a fact that may be true not only for him, but for everyone in his timeline of salvation, that by grace has been saved and given the gift of eternal life. In his foreknowledge, our sovereign God chose Noah as an elect heir of salvation. God predestinated Noah to be born into this world at that particular time for a specific reason. God knew Noah's life destiny and particularly marked him for salvation before the dawn of creation. No amount of good works or marks on his resume dictated God's savings grace upon Noah's life, for Noah was justified by grace alone. Through faith alone, by Christ alone. Grace is the unmerited favor of God to ill-deserving sinners. Salvation is a gift from God that we cannot earn. Noah found grace in his God's purpose, before he was ever born. Noah will receive a wonderful reward for his faithful obedience to God, but we must not confuse the gift of salvation and the reward that Noah will receive as his having earned salvation. Salvation is a present possession. The reward for good work is a future attainment. God tells us that once the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat, a long wait still loomed. Genesis 8.5 reads, and the waters decreased continually until the tenth month, and in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of mountains seen. At this point, Noah had been in the ark 223 days. By this time, he surely could observe the tops of all the mountains. Keep in mind that the ark may have rested at an elevation of about 17,000 feet. The view must have been expansive and quite awesome. I am certain anxiety was high as the folks on the ark urgently tried to estimate how much longer before they could leave the ark. After 223 days, they still had to spend more time aboard the ark. Genesis 8, verse 6 and 7 informs us, And it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro, until the waters were dried up from the earth. Another 40 days passed, and Noah decided to open the window. 
we can be certain that Noah executed this very carefully, because, according to the biblical account, the window had not been opened since they boarded the ark. Noah decided to send a raven out. What would it find? The biblical record does not tell us what the, that the raven returned to ark, but we assume it did return to its mate because we have ravens on the earth today. Noah had taken only one pair of unclean, flesh-eating birds upon the ark. The wise Noah chose a raven as a scout because a raven flies at a high altitude. It could see well into the distance. It found no significant reason to not return to the ark. Being a flesh-eating member of the bird family, the raven could have found plenty of food in the water and could have rested on some exposed portion of the earth. The problem was simple. There was no dry land available except for the tops of the highest mountains. The raven and the dove have been used to point out the two natures of the believer. The raven was satisfied with the old world under judgment of water and content with whatever food it could find. The dove was not satisfied with the old world and thus eager to experience the new creation with a new beginning in Jesus Christ saved from the wrath to come. No believer can be satisfied with the sin of the present world and bound for judgment of fire, but is looking for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Genesis 8 verse 8 and 9 reveals that Noah sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her, and pulled her in unto him into the ark. In scripture, the dove is a symbol of peace, wellness, and new beginning. More than this, it is the symbol of the Holy Spirit, as was manifested at the baptism of Jesus. The dove flies at low altitude and requires ground upon which to touch down and survive. Noah was wise in choosing the dove, a clean bird. When the dove returned, Noah knew that it was still not time to leave the ark. Genesis 8, verse 10 and 11 says, And he stayed yet another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came in to him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. What rejoicing there must have been aboard the ark! The faithful dove, a symbol of peace, was a most welcome sight. He bore in his beak the olive leaf, a sign that earth was resuming life. The olive leaf is symbolic in the Bible because it represents the ten tribes of Israel. The fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Judah. Genesis 8.12 reads, And he stayed yet other seven days, and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. And verse 13 and it came to pass, in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. On day 313, then, Noah found that the ark, that the earth appeared to be dry. Thus, Noah removed the covering from the ark. This must have been no little task, and apparently it was still a bit early to leave the ark, for Noah knew that it was not yet time. Genesis 8, verse 14 and 17, reveals the glorious day when Noah could disembark. At long last, the magic moment came with day 370. Noah's patience must have been stretched quite thin by this point. And in the second month, on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife, and thy sons, and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee, of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth, and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. What jubilant rejoicing must have ensued! At long last the ground was sufficiently dry. 
The grand procession from the ark had begun. Genesis 8:18 and 19 records this monumental event. And Noah went forth, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds, went forth out of the ark. After Noah and his family, the representatives of all the other distinct races aboard the ark followed, and then the creatures passed through the door one by one into the new world. Having lived aboard the enclosed ark for little more than a year, it's difficult to imagine the excitement that followed their exit from their year-long confinement. For Noah and his family, this new day was the beginning of a new life. The old world was destroyed. Everything living was wiped from the face of the earth. The only life left was within the walls of the ark. Noah and everyone aboard the ark stepped into the world dramatically different that prior to the flood. Place yourself in a world that Noah and his family now faced. They were faced with the task of finding food and water and moving to lower ground. It's possible that they could depend on food that they may have not used up aboard the ark. We can be certain that God would have provided. Nature has a marvelous way of replenishing itself. Perhaps their knowledge of the plant world could enable them to survive. It's of great importance for believers to consider the importance of the spiritual life of Noah. As the patriarch of the family, Noah knew that his first priority was the building of an altar for the proper worship of Jehovah. There was so much to be grateful for. Noah and everyone aboard the ark had been spared from the most cataclysmic event to occur on this earth since creation itself. Genesis 8.20 records this event. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. In obedience to the divine command, Noah brought seven pairs of all the clean animals and fowls, male and female, for acceptable offerings to keep their species alive. Now the first sacrifices from these clean creatures would be offered. Genesis 8.21 confirms that God found Noah's sacrificial offering acceptable. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. This should inspire believers to worship. It is so important to our eternal God, and he deserves the best that we can offer him in worship. Unlike Noah, we will not be bringing clean creatures of the forest and fowls of the air for sacrifice, for the blood of Jesus Christ became the last sacrifice for sin. Instead, our duty is to live in humble obedience to God's commands, and worship and thank him for his sacrifice at Calvary. He purchased the gift of salvation at a very high cost, the price of Christ's bloody and sacrificial death. We find in scripture that sin followed Noah and his descendants off the ark. They were sinners saved by grace in the ark, and they remain so in the new world as well. The heart is evil from our youth. The Holy Spirit can enliven us to be new creatures in Christ, and the blood of Jesus Christ can be our righteousness. But we are still sinful creatures, subject to and accountable for God's divine laws and commands. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us of the nature of our hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? From Jeremiah 17, verse 9. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are born from the womb as transgressors. See also Isaiah 48, verse 8. A significant revelation in Genesis 8:22 revealed the dramatic changes that accompanied the flood. 
While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. The Genesis Flood transformed the entire planet, tilting the earth on its axis and producing seasonal changes which, depending on the location, caused dramatic swings from spring, summer, fall, and winter. Among the more significant changes was men's lifespan. Noah lived 350 years after the flood for a grand total of 950 years. Genesis 9.28, however, life expectancy dwindled significantly by 10 generations later, for Abraham died at 175 years of age in Genesis 7. Scripture records that Abraham died in a good old age. What might it have been like to live 950 years like Noah? Another change was the disappearance of the water canopy. This canopy filtered the UV rays of the sun, increasing longevity. Before the flood, the earth was like a giant greenhouse, able to sustain a world filled with heavy vegetation. That world disappeared during the flood. The earth underwent more than change. It was almost recreated. Such was the transformation. Enormous changes occurred at the polar regions of the earth, and essentially, the ratio of land to water before the flood was essentially reversed afterward. Further, the one gigantic continent of Earth before the Flood became seven continents, with the Earth being covered with many regions and giant oceans. A giant portion of the Earth that is now covered with ocean was once dry land. In the next and final installment regarding the Genesis Flood, a discussion of the immediate days after Noah left the Ark will be the focus. How were Noah and his family able to pick up the pieces and face life after this catastrophic event? Their lifestyles were changed dramatically as they resumed life in this whole new world that was completely altered by the cataclysmic forces unleashed in the Great Deluge.